there was a development of the the rest of the story as as uh, Paul whatever his name <laughs> used to say. Um, okay, immediately after the resurrection, that'd be Paul yeah. Harvey. Marcus yeah, Rodi is going to hear you forget Paul Harvey's name and he's going to lose his mind. That's like no, his it's not going to happen. Because Seth's going to cut it out. <laughs> no, he's not. Leave it in, Seth. Leave it in. Let Ken's Leave it shame in. be shown before all. Ah, the shame, the shame. Page okay. five. Well, hello and welcome to another Not Drunk As You Suppose episode of On The Journey. I'm Matt Swain, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're in the octave of Pentecost and so glad because there's going to be some Pentecost stuff that comes up in this week's episode. We've been talking about Christian Mm -hmm. authority for several episodes. And if you appreciate On The Journey and are curious about what it's all about, uh, come visit us at uh, chnetwork.org. We're a production of the Coming Home Network. We've got all kinds of resources for people who have all kinds of levels from serious to just mildly curious when it comes to the Catholic Church. Ken used to be a Baptist pastor. I used to be an uh, evangelical Wesleyan kind of guy who worked at Family Christian Store and abused my employee discount. But here we are. Here we are, and we're talking about authority, and especially as it looks in the New Testament. Ken, how are you? I am doing really good. I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm doing good. <laughs> well, I, I think it's awesome that we're going to talk about some stuff related to Pentecost in this week where we just celebrated Pentecost on Sunday. But uh, if you Mm -hmm. could, set a little bit of the stage for us to catch people up on what we've been on so far so it makes sense when we get into the New Testament aspect of these questions. the series that we are in is titled Scripture, Tradition, and Magisterium, where we are basically asking the question about authority, the ultimate question of authority. We did a series in which we critiqued Sola Scriptura, the the fundamental uh, answer to the question of authority that we that we held when we were Protestants, um, but at that time we didn't turn around and present the the uh, the Catholic side of the equation, and that that's what we're doing. So we're moving through that issue, and anyone who wants to catch up, I encourage you to watch earlier episodes um, as we kind of creep and crawl our way along in the subject. Uh, but last week, you and I looked at the pattern of authority in the Old Testament. And what we saw, in, in terms of basic structure, it's the same pattern of authority that we find in the Catholic Church. There was Scripture, authoritative. There was the oral teaching of the prophets, law and the prophets. And there was an authoritative magisterium in the Old Testament, Scripture, tradition, and magisterium. And, and we talked a little today, bit yeah, last week about it? what we mean by magisterium. It's the teaching authority that yeah. uh, guards the correct interpretation of the scriptures and uh, is itself a form of tradition uh, in action. So as correct. the magisterium. Correct. Thanks for adding that too. Um, okay. So today we move from the Old Testament forward to look at the pattern of authority in the New Testament church born, as you mentioned, on the day of Pentecost. And the first question that we want to ask, Matt, is this. We want to ask this question. What was the pattern what was the basic pattern or structure of authority during the lives of the apostles and the earliest Christians? And in terms of basic structure, what we're going to see is that it looks a whole lot like uh, the pattern that we saw in the Old Testament. Scripture, tradition, or oral teaching of those in authority, 
and magisterium. First, there was scripture. During the time of the apostles, the Old Testament scripture, as well as the writings of the apostles, were received as inspired and authoritative. And um, as I've mapped this out, I don't think we need to spend more than about a minute here, maybe two minutes, because you and I, all those watching, all those listening, know that Jesus quoted the Old Testament again and again as inspired and authoritative. When Jesus wanted to rebuke the religious leaders of his time, he rebuked them for not knowing the scriptures, quote unquote. And he also said that scripture cannot be broken. He said not one jot or tittle from the law would pass away without it all being fulfilled. And when Jesus wanted to enlighten the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what does he do? He turns to the Old Testament and quoting from Luke 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And just to jump on that real quick, when Jesus says that he went through the scriptures and interpreted all the things concerning himself, Mm -hmm. Paul's not saying to the people on the road to Emmaus, well, as it says about me, you know, in Romans, right? Yeah, because yeah, that's not yeah. been written yet. Uh, yeah. He can't even say, as it says about me in Luke, because that's not been written yet. Right. Uh, he's he's referring to the Old Testament, and that's what he's been referring to throughout his earthly ministry. He's referring to all the shadows, the types, the 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 intimations, and that's a, you know, many have said, that's a sermon. Wouldn't you have loved to hear that sermon? Oh my gosh. And Why did known... they not record that as part of the oral tradition? I mean, come on, that would uh, yeah. be bestseller stuff right there. I mean, I could, you could create a great course on Christology in the Old Testament if oh, you'd yeah, heard that's that all one. in there. All okay, in so there. Jesus, for Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures are authoritative and inspired. Same with the apostles. The apostles quote the Old Testament again and again as inspired and authoritative throughout the New Testament writings. And in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, we can hear St. Paul's view of the authority and usefulness of the Old Testament inspired writings when he says, Uh, He's writing to Timothy. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith through faith in Christ Jesus. He is referring to the Old Testament here, that Timothy from his childhood has has uh, had read to him and understood. Then Paul says, all Scripture, and this will apply to the New Testament writings as well. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Finally, we know that the writings of the apostles were also received as authoritative. In fact, in his second letter, St. Peter specifically refers to Paul's writings as scripture. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation so also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all of his letters, there are some things in them hard to understand. That's, that's, that is that's true. That's an understatement. That's it's good to know that even Peter thought that some of Paul was hard to understand. So. As soon as I read, there are some things hard to understand, and I've got Luther floating before my eyes and Calvin and everyone else and the debates that go on to this very day. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So, to quickly sum up, for the early Christians living during the time of the apostles, the Old Testament writings, as well as the writings of the apostles, were received as inspired and authoritative. 
Scripture is authoritative, but so also was the oral teaching of the apostles received as authoritative. Now, you know, the more I've thought about this through the years, Matt, I mean, this is something that should be self-evident, and yet not only is it missed, but it's it's rejected in many ways by by many on the sola scriptura um, side of the of the spectrum. But it should be self-evident. I mean, after all, Jesus had ordained his apostles. Jesus had given to his apostles his own authority. Remember, sending them forth, he who hears you hears me, he who listens to you listens to me. He had promised the Holy Spirit would be given to lead them into all of the truth. And so when you think of it, it borders on the absurd, really, to think that when Paul wrote something down in his letter to the Ephesians, it was authoritative. But when he was in Ephesus saying the same things, somehow it wasn't authoritative. Or wasn't no. as authoritative, which is more like, I mean, right. I think that most people, and at least I would say, oh, sure, what Paul taught was authoritative by word of mouth. But the important stuff he wrote down, the stuff that he just said out loud, that was not as important. That's how I would have thought of it. But, it, mm-hmm. you know, it's like saying, well, the stuff that Jesus, you know, says on the Sermon of the Mount is important, but the stuff that he says to the guys on the road to Emmaus, it's not as important or they would have written it down. Well, it is, yeah, it, you know, I mean, you can't make as that soon as you say it like As soon as you say it like that, then you kind of realize, like, wait, 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 it would have been as important. So maybe what, maybe what uh, is happening in the Protestant mind is more along the lines of, well, it may have been important, but if it had been, but if it had been needful, then God would have preserved it in Scripture, and and, and also the Scriptures are 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 more clear, right? And, and again, like, something like that. Th- that would have been my my knee jerk reaction to something like this, mm-hmm. because also I hadn't thought through all the stuff that you're about to say. Yeah, <laughs> so. I mean, this weekend, next week, when we look at it after the apostles, but yeah, but f- first of all, though, no, Paul's oral teaching was authoritative. In fact, he confirms this when he writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So right here, I mean, Paul just states flat out, when I came to you, Thessalonians, and I came preaching, that was the word of God. Okay, that was you long before this letter was written, and uh, <laughs> you know I'm commending you for having gotten that essential stuff down. As a matter of fact, you got it right. down so much that I'm not even going to include the plan in my letter to you. Right, the stuff I said, I'm not even going to repeat it. You know, right. you got it down. So Paul's oral teaching, Paul's oral preaching, were to be received as again the word of God. So you can't get more authoritative than that, and he expected. Christians to hold fast, to guard, and to keep everything that he had taught them. We see this from 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the paradosis, the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. I mean, either way, Paul's teaching is to be treasured, his teaching is to be preserved by the Holy Spirit, and it's to be passed on to others, which we find summed up beautifully in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, a passage that we've returned to many times. Follow, Timothy, the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. 
Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And here I just want to point out that Paul does not make a point to write down all those things again on a piece of paper for Timothy. Um, He just says, you know what we talked about. Uh, Right. Pass it on to other people. Other people saw me tell you this. Pass that on. And so so whatever it was was important enough that Paul didn't even have to put it down on paper in his letter to Timothy. Mm -hmm. So it's not evidence that what Paul had told that the, the spoken word was less important to Timothy than the written word. It was evidence, if anything, that the you know things that he had said to Timothy were so important that he didn't even feel that he had to write that had to write them yeah, down here. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, just as a quick comparison, then um, when I was a Baptist minister, and most evangelicals I know would say something like this: Look, if it was important. I mean, yeah, 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 what they said was the Word of God, but if it was important, it would have been included in Scripture. It's not included in Scripture, and therefore it's not important, or it can't be known, which is something that we need to get to a little bit later. But, but, but when you actually read the New Testament, then what you hear, what we hear is Scripture is authoritative, and also everything that I taught Timothy is to be guarded by the Holy Spirit, it's to be treasured, it's to be held on to, and it is to be passed on. Not that, you know, everything I'm saying to you now, you know, you're hearing it, this whole pattern of sound words, you know, enjoy it for the time being because, you know, in a very short time, it's going to be meaningless. Yeah. So, and with this, you know, there's another thing that I, you know, I don't want to go too far down this, this, this road, but there's another thing I would have subconsciously been thinking if I said, you know, if it was important, then Mm -hmm. it would have been written down and included in the pages Mm -hmm. of scripture. What I was saying without realizing it was, if it was important and it had been written in the days after the printing press, (laughs) you know, and people had been predisposed to have writing as their primary form of getting information, then it would have been included in the pages of scripture because, you know, you and I, as we we, read, yeah, we said this before a few episodes ago. I mean, if you ask me, you know, about the next time we're going to go record one of these, uh, you and I can have a full conversation, but then I'm going to say, can you send me that in an email? Because yeah, my brain is so wired to read things that are written that I don't have a memory like a steel trap to record oral tradition. And these people knew one story and they knew one story extremely well. They were Jews. Their whole mm. world was the preservation of story. So yeah, just like, oral you, know, you find in certain tribal areas where people can go and sit down. You and got one guy in the told. whole town who remembers everything that ever has happened to that tribe. Right, right. Passed and he tells the next from... guy before he dies. Yeah. Okay, so... Put it together then, we're talking about what was the pattern or structure of authority during the time in which the apostles were alive. And we have, as in the Old Testament, we have the inspired scriptures as authoritative, and then we have the oral teaching of the apostles as authoritative. And then finally, we find that during the time the apostles are living, there was an authoritative magisterium. You have the apostles as the primary authority, the ordained elders under them, and then the deacons serving in whatever ways were needed at the time. And first thing I want to do here is I want to talk a, a little bit about the development of this hierarchy. Okay, the apostles are there. Christ commissions them. They're the foundation of the hierarchy of the magisterium. But there was a development of the the rest of the story, as as uh, Paul, whatever his name, <laughs> used to say. Um, 
Okay, immediately after the resurrection. That'd be Paul yeah. Harvey. Marcus yeah, Grodi is going to hear you forget Paul Harvey's name and he's going to lose his mind. That's like No, his it's not going to happen because Seth's going to cut it out. <laughs> no, he's not. Leave it in, Seth. Leave it in. Let Ken's Leave shame be shown before all. Ah, oh, the shame, the shame. Page okay. five. But a word on the development here of the hierarchy in the New Testament. Immediately after the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus, and the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, immediately after this, the apostles began to preach the gospel, at first within the city of Jerusalem, and very soon, I mean, within, it could have been a month, a couple of months, very soon they began to ordain others to assist them in the ministry. In Acts chapter 6, so again, very early, we read of the beginnings of this development, and I read it to you. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists, that is the Greek disciples, murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned, so the twelve apostles are still in the city of Jerusalem at this time, the twelve summoned the body of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Notice that it was the practical needs of the church that gave rise to this early development of a um, hierarchical structure. And, and this is not a hierarchy that Jesus himself instituted. This no, is one that the no. apostles Yeah, the apostles are being led as they're with following With the authority the that God had given them. That Jesus yeah. had had passed to them and said, you know, whatever you bind on yeah. earth, including the administrative decisions you make, you know, are going to That's be important. Right. Yeah, this is like the apostles functioning as um, the spiritual leaders of the church. This is like a, a mother and father in a home saying, "Okay, we need to eat. Uh, we're going to go down to the, you know, pick up a pizza, whatever." Okay, it was them developing this in response to the need of the moment. Okay, quoting again, what they said pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. Now, Which again, just laying their hands on them mm-hmm. is not just, you know, they were all there and they prayed and they were touching one another, you know, because they were such good friends. It was a group no. hug. No, this is like a sacramental thing that is happening. Yeah. This is something we could go off on because all the way through the Old Testament, the laying on of hands to ordain the priests and the high priests and all this, this is a part of their history, and this is a sacramental thing. Okay, now this passage, Acts 6, has always been understood as describing the origin of the diaconate, which comes from the Greek word diakonos, which simply means, that is translating the Greek, it simply means one who renders service, or a servant, an attendant, if you will. Now, while deacons from the beginning seem to have mainly handled ministerial functions, serving at tables, uh, distribution of food and money and whatnot, we also find them preaching and teaching and baptizing and even performing miracles in these early days. In fact, the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, was one of the seven listed here in Acts chapter 6. And because of his preaching, he was, as you know, stoned to death. I mean, he was ordained in Acts chapter 6, and he was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Yeah, and if, when you read the preaching of Stephen that got him stoned, it's not unlike the preaching that you hear from Peter 
that gets him arrested. It's it's a very yeah. similar structure, and he brings up very similar points. So um, it's it's no question that even though it's ordained specifically as a ministry for service, they still have mm-hmm. authority to teach and preach. Yeah. Okay. So this is how it begins. Then that is the development of the the, the structure, the hierarchical structure of the magisterium it begins with the deacons. But then as time went by, in particular after the stoning of Stephen, the very next verse in Acts chapter 8 says, after this they were scattered outside Jerusalem. Well, as time went by, the apostles began to preach outside of Jerusalem, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the land, and to found churches in towns and cities throughout eventually the Roman Empire. And the need arose then, another need arose, for them to ordain men who could take their place in the leadership of those churches when they moved on, you know, as Paul went to Thessalonica and he pre- preached and he taught and he founded a church and then he had to leave. They needed to ordain leadership that could follow them and could take their place in rule, ruling in the churches and teaching in the churches under the apostolic authority. And so this is what comes next. Now, sometimes the Greek word presbyteros is used to describe these men. Um, the word simply means elder. It means it, it literally refers to someone advanced in years, presbyteros. It's from this Greek word that we derive our word presbyter, and later on the English word priest. Um, in the Old Testament, of course, as you know, again as we mentioned with the laying on of hands, elders represented the voice of authority. It was natural for the tribal elders to be the leadership, and therefore it was natural for the New Testament church to assume the same title and begin to refer to their ordained leadership as the elders. And this was a specific title that, again, was uh, you know, not connected to just all men who were old, right? This yeah, was, it, just it was comes an, it was from an that. office. Yeah, it comes um, from this. So. Yeah, it, it, it's taken from this, and it represents an office. At times we find these men in the New Testament referred to by the term presbyteros, and at other times, these elders are referred to by a different Greek word, episkopos, from which we get our words episcopal, we get our word bishop. Now, this word has a slightly different meaning. It means an overseer. It means a guardian. These are the ways it can be translated. And in fact, it, it's translated at least once in the New Testament as office. This is in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, where Peter is ordaining Matthias to take the place of Judas, and he cites Psalm 109, verse 8, his office, and it's the Greek word bishopric, he's quoting from the Septuagint, the, Old, the Greek Old Testament, his office let another man take. Okay, so again, sometimes these men that were ordained to take the place of the apostles when they left are referred to as elders, presbyteros. At times they're referred to as bishops. But from the information that we have in the book of Acts and the New Testament letters in general, it really does seem that these terms were used interchangeably pretty much at that time, during the time of the apostles, and that, that they didn't refer to two distinct separate offices as they later came to in the development of the church after the apostles, which we're going to talk about in some detail ne- next week. And I don't want to get into that too much, but just like with the formation of the diaconate, a practical mm-hmm. need arose, and so a practical yeah. office was parsed out. Yeah. You and we believe that's the, that's the Spirit of God. Yeah, the yeah, only it, time that a practical need would arise and they would have to make some decisions about how they were going to administrate this thing? Of course not. No, of course not. No, you were a no. Baptist pastor, right? How many times did you have to make practical calls about your congregation to figure out, well, maybe we have too many people doing this thing. 
maybe we need some more people doing this thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's just how it is. Okay. Now, um, I also don't want to travel too much in the weeds here, but I want to substantiate a little bit this idea that Presbyteros, Elder, Episcopos, Bishop, were being used interchangeably during the time of the Apostles. And so I give just one or two examples. In Titus chapter 1, for instance, Paul instructs Titus to ordain elders in every church, and then a few minutes later, he's referring to these elders as bishops. Okay, in Acts 14, verse 23, we see Paul ordaining again, quote, elders, unquote, in the churches of Asia Minor. In Acts 20, 17, he, Paul sends a le- uh, he sends to these elders, he refers to them as elders of the church of Ephesus to come and meet with him. But then only a few verses later, we find Paul referring to them as bishops. And I'm quoting now, these elders that he called to him, now he says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the, over- in which the Holy Spirit has made you Episcopos has made you overseers, bishops, to feed the church of the Lord, which he has obtained with his own blood. So it appears that, as we saw with the deacons, it appears that these men would be recommended by the people of God in the local community, those who knew them, you know, those who could vouch for their qualifications. And then once they were examined, they would be ordained by the apostles, or by representatives of the apostles, as he says, as he's telling Titus, you know, um, to ordain elders by the laying on of hands. This seems like what had happened. And I was kind of tempted at this point, Matt, to go off and look in detail at all the New Testament ordinations and all that. But then I realized, no, the, the point here is the structure of authority, not to go off into every detail. You could still so, paint the so picture without having to go into all that. There are other people, I, you know, Dr. John Bergsma has a whole thing a whole new book on uh, Jesus and the Old Testament uh, roots of the priesthood that can right. kind of show what was going on, as we were saying, with the laying on of hands and everything else. You know, yeah. all the priestly language from Adam all yeah. the way up through the New Testament. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we'll let Berks handle that one. But I think it is important, you know, as we're talking about this, you know, I'm just to state it again, that what we find are the apostles being the primary authority, and yet we find them responding to practical the practical situations and needs of the church to develop a, a more extensive magisterium that will continue after them. And so far we see the diaconate and we see the ordination of elders and or bishops into the church. Um, but the question now that I want to focus on for the remainder of our time, uh, the key question, the, uh, the question of authority. Okay, we've seen that the New Testament magisterium was comprised of the apostles and then under them elders and or bishops, and then third, deacons. Now, what was the nature of the, of the authority that this magisterium together exercised during the time of the apostles? That's what I want to look at. And, um, at least at this time, I will go ahead and spit the word out. At least at this time, the authority of the magisterium, led as it was by the apostles, was infallible. There was an infallible authority. And, and, and I want to clarify, I don't mean by this, and I don't believe, that individual elders in all of the various churches scattered all over the Roman Empire were infallibly speaking, uh, you know, day and night or, or, or ever, you know. Or not I mean even to the present they, day, right? And we yeah, don't talk yes. that way about our priests right now. Yeah. I mean that when they functioned together, which we're going to look at now, they were infallible, okay? When this magisterium, apostles, elders, bishops under them, and the deacons, when they functioned together, they were an infallible magisterium. 
Now, the clearest illustration that you and I have of this is the one that's given in Acts 15. This is a passage we've referred to a number of times, but in order for those listening to really get the feel of the mindset, okay, I, I want to walk through it a little bit in, in a little bit more detail than we have typically in the past and, and read it. This is from Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, that is, came down to Antioch, which on a map is up, but it's actually down. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they said, you cannot be saved. Now, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentile converts, and charge them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were, to, were gathered together to consider this matter. And as we know, so I don't have to go on reading too much of it, discussion ensued, debate ensued, a decision was reached, and a letter was drafted, um, virtually a decree, that to be delivered to all the churches, okay? And here's a, a portion of the letter. The brethren, both the apostles and the elders, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greeting. Since we have heard that some persons from us have troubled you with words, that is, some persons from Jerusalem, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it, it, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And the letter goes on to... I feel like every time we read that, I, I see like a couple more things <laughs> that I didn't see the last mm -hmm. 200 times that we have referenced this, uh, but among them, uh, just the fact that, that, you know, it's the church and the apostles and the elders, that's three groups, but it's the apostles and the elders who meet to talk about this. Uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, you know, that there's the church, yeah. but then there's definitely people in charge of it. Uh, it's not yeah. this yeah. amoeba made up of all the Christians who all decide together, you know, as... Yeah. I must have. I don't know why I had this impression that it was just kind of the Bible is just sort of this thing that all believers recognize as the Word of God. No, there was apostles and elders involved in this thing, right? right. There's this right. a real live right. hierarchy that's right on this page. Right, right. And I want to follow, uh, draw out j just a few points from this that I have organized here. Um, first of all, in this passage, we definitely find an authoritative magisterium. We find this magisterium meeting in assembly to resolve the very first major theological dispute in the history of Christianity, now, less than 20 years after the, the crucifixion, because th this dates the Council of Jerusalem, as it's been referred to ever since, dates to around 48, 49, possibly 50 AD. Usually scholars dated it 49 AD. So this within 20 years of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and we have an authoritative magisterium. They're meeting in a council to resolve the first major theological issue. Okay, second, we find this magisterium issuing a decree when they're finished, which is taken to be authoritative and binding God's will in the situation. 
Uh, again, I quote that those important words from the letter that they sent out, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I mean, I find it a little bit humorous that they don't even say, hey, uh, here's our decision. It seems good to us, and we pray the Holy Spirit. You know, they, they reverse it. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and, and to us, because we always agree with the Holy Spirit, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and, and they give it. And then the third one is this, the one that you hinted at just a moment ago, Matt, we can see from this passage that while the authority of the apostles was clearly primary, they are the official spokesman for Jesus Christ. They did not con- they did not conceive of themselves as functioning alone. And I, I know that you noticed it, but I ask almost rhetorically, did you notice how often the words the apostles and the elders appear in this narrative that we it's read? It's multiple times. It's multiple times. As a matter of fact, it even appears in the letter that they send out. It appears again and again, and so that those watching, those listening can catch the feeling of what we're saying here. Just listen to this. In verse 2, we read, that is of Acts 15, we read that Paul and Barnabas are, quote, appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and the elders, unquote. In verse 4, they arrive in Jerusalem and are, quote, welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders. In verse 6, we read that, quote, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. In verse 22, quote, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to deliver the decrees to the believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. In verse 23, we read the beginning of the letter, the brethren, both the apostles and the elders, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greeting. And then finally in verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So us meaning I, the apostles and the elders. Yeah, I think you said it well. Yeah. It, it's the apostles and the elders and the whole church are in Jerusalem that is are agreeing to this and are happy with this and are behind it. But it's the apostles and the elders that are drafting that are making the decision and drafting the letter and sending it out. And um my point here is that the apostles did not conceive of themselves as functioning alone. It was the apostles. If if they did, they would have just called the twelve apostles together, you know, and uh, you know Paul and Barnabas, who were now apostles. But instead, they called together the apostles and the elders, and together, they make the decision, and the whole church accepts that decision with joy as the decision of the Holy Spirit. In verse thirty-one, we read that when the churches had received the letter, they rejoiced at the exhortation. Now, I know there are probably some people who have some real problems with the papacy who are saying, well, I have about 500 questions about what you just read (laughs) involving the authority of Peter, and we're going to do a whole separate series on the question of of Peter and his role and everything. Well, it's going to be connected to this. It's going to be part of this series, just so people know. But but all that to be said, even Pope Francis today Mm -hmm. does not exercise his authority in some vacuum where he wakes up one morning and decides he's going to do something. Even he has an accountability to, you know, the people he has around yes. him and the people who've gone before him. And he has—he's uh, not some lone wolf. Uh, he has an authority as head of the apostles, as successor of Peter. But he can't be a magisterium just because he feels a certain way on a certain day. He has to no. be together with the apostles and the elders in the whole church when he says these things. He's not going to just like declare that black is white yeah. and 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 just do it because he feels like it in a certain day. He doesn't have the authority to do so. No. 
No. Um, I mean, his job is to receive what has been passed on from the beginning to hold it, you know, to guard it by the Holy Spirit and to pass it on. Yeah. That's his job. But I want to second what you've just said because, yeah, I mean, it's one of the frustrating things with um, teaching is that as we're delivering this material, yeah, I'm thinking uh, from my Protestant background, especially, I'm thinking, oh, all the questions here. I mean, someone's going to be saying, okay, look, while the apostles are alive, of course they're speaking by the Holy Spirit because the apostles' authority is in the midst of this whole thing. But it's totally different after the apostles die, you guys. That's why it it, it, it changes to Scripture alone. And, uh, and yeah, and what about the Pope? And what about this? And all I can say is, you ever watch Columbo? Just one more question, Ken. Wait, have you ever watched Columbo? Yes, of course I've watched Columbo. Oh, oh, okay, well, well, I thought maybe Columbo was before you were even born. I, well, I don't know. It may have you been, know? but okay. you know, culture has okay. telescoped with the advent okay. of the internet, Ken. Okay, and well, cable TV. Columbo doesn't reruns. walk into the room and say, "You're the murderer." Okay, Columbo walks into the room and he looks around and he sees a photograph of a you know of a Dodge Dart, and he says, "Hmm." He says, "Is that your Dodge that Dart?" Your he says, no, that's my brother's Dodge Dart. Yeah, did you know the murder was committed? Some say it was a, the, the, that the, the culprit was driving away in a Dodge Dart. You know, you know he, he starts with my whole point. I, I, I mean, I'm winging this here, but my point is this, that I want to do like Columbo and I want us to move along and build a structure. And the questions I hope will all be answered, but I don't like this scattershot, you know, shotgun, try to answer all things in one talk. If you do that, it's not going to be, it, it's not going to be, um, um, it's not going to be convincing. And, and so... All I really care about this week is to make the point that in the Old Testament, we find this follow, uh, the following pattern or structure of authority. We find scripture, the writings of the prophets and the law. We find the oral teaching of the prophets, call it tradition. And we find an ordained magisterium comprised of the Levites, priests, high priests, judges, kings, as the Lord is using them, like David. And in the New Testament, we find a similar pattern of authority. We find the writings of the apostles, scripture and the Old Testament, the oral teaching of the apostles, call it tradition, and an ordained magisterium comprised now of apostles, elders, and or bishops, and the deacons. Now, in terms of the basic pattern of a structure, I mean the, the basic structure or pattern of authority, this pattern clearly looks more like the pattern, at least leave it like that. On, on the surface, it looks more like the pattern we see in the Catholic Church or in the Orthodox Church than it does in most Protestant churches, except maybe the most high church that put a lot of weight on tradition and have a more organized magisterium. But I just want to make the point that on the surface, the pattern we're seeing in the Old Testament and in the New Testament during the time of the Apostles looked to me a whole lot more as I was on my way learning about Catholicism, looked to me a whole lot more like what we see in the Catholic Church with all the outstanding questions still that, that you referred to and that we're going to work through than it certainly did my Baptist church where yeah. there was no formal belief in the oral teaching of the apostles, the tradition, and there was no formal magisterium beyond um, the pastors in the church, you know, and... Probably wasn't even anything like that in the seminary that you went to. Um, to yeah, and the deacons the... were people that we and the deacons were people that we would vote in in our congregation. Yeah, would they serve a term? And, yeah, and they'd right? have a term, yeah, so they're yeah, like yeah, de that's very deacons common, for two actually. years, and, th and then they're not, you know. And then you're suddenly not. Yeah. Well, and and for me, uh, the lower church that I got before I went all the way back to, you know, to the top and to the 
Catholicism that I ended up in, you know, yeah. I would have said, at least before I started looking into these questions, who cares what kind of administrative bureaucratic stuff was going on? What matters yeah. was the gospel that they preached. You yeah. don't have to worry. Yeah. All this is like weird administrative, you know, back end. It's like the Silmarillion of like the New Testament. You know, it's just. Which need- is an interesting thing because. Because if you take the scripture to be the sole infallible rule of faith and practice, it's interesting then that I would read the scripture and decide um, this is important. This isn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is. But but that's what I did, uh, and I know I'm not alone in this. I also did the same thing about you know the Blessed Virgin Mary, right? Like I know God chose her, you know, to bear the Son of God, but that's not what important. What's what's important? What's important was you know the Jesus part of this question. Right. You know, right. but again, it was me deciding to minimize or, yeah. or not minimize. Yeah. But we're going to get to a lot of those things later. Just so you know, it is not as Columbus yeah, in say, terms of in terms of where we're going this week. In terms of where we're going, next week we will look at the pattern of authority that came to exist in the church after the apostles. Yeah. And that's going to be a lot of fun because there's a lot there that a lot of people who are in uh, a scripture alone world don't even probably realize uh, is there and how cl- how much it looks like what we see in Acts uh, 15 and the Council of Jerusalem and the natural yeah. outgrowth of that. So looking forward to it, Ken. This has been, this has been some so fun stuff. Uh, and if you appreciate what you're hearing, then uh, please do uh, check us out on our online community, especially community.chnetwork.org, yeah. uh, where we have like conversations about this uh, with other people who are interested in topics like Christian authority. We also have um, uh, a subscribe button at our YouTube channel and spread the word and let us know uh, where you are on some of these questions. And just don't yell at Ken and I for not covering every single one of them every episode because... Or knowing that it's Paul Harvey. To to. That's right. And it wasn't a Dodge Dart. Maybe it was. I don't know. That's what some said. This episode brought to you by Dodge. Talk to you next week, Ken. See you later. See you later.